Another episode of Dinos Unfiltered coming at you. Jeremy Lee, Max Sterling in studio. We talked about this earlier. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, this we we joked about how we should we should have led this podcast with just a uh, a clip from Mad World by Gary Jules because it's a mad world. <laughs> yeah, all around me are familiar that kind of thing. Because you know. We, we did the episode last week with six different teams because there was so much going on. And, man, what just what a heartbreaking weekend for so many different groups of people. Um, yeah, I don't know where to start. All in all, just not the results that we were hoping for. Of course, you know, men's volleyball, they got eliminated from playoffs. Men's and women's hockey. Both in double overtime. Oh, yeah. it's the worst way to yeah. go out. Yeah. And men's and women's basketball, we had really good playoff positioning, just couldn't win the games that we needed to. And so therefore, neither team will be playing for a Canada West championship. However, they both have outside shots at making nationals, so yep. we hope Two that well goes well. Spots. Yeah. I know you were pretty invested in the hockey oh. scene, so... Just a couple quick thoughts because we do have a pretty extended interview with Damien Jennings, uh, women's basketball. So, yes. Yeah. Um, it was a best of three, and they needed all three games. Yeah, for sure. They, they needed all three games and then some. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people going into this series, you know, this is for women's hockey specifically, that as a, as a neutral fan or as a fan of the game, that this, this couldn't have been any better matchup-wise, you know. Calgary, Mount Royal, they've been close all season. Um, you know, even though the Dinos won the season series, all the games were close minus the Crochelle Classic. And that carried over into this weekend through and through. Three one-goal games, uh, offensive standout performances for both teams, unbelievable goaltending. Um, you know, on a surface level, that was the best three-game stretch of hockey from Canada West Women's I've ever seen, honestly. The intensity was palpable. The players were, you know, they they brought it every step of the way. And, you know, it's it's one shot away. You know, a, a series, a season comes down to one shot. And, you know, I give Mount Royal credit. You know, they, they, they really brought it. They came back down multiple leads in multiple games. They were down one nothing in the series. And they, yeah, they, they had... They had a player in Tiana Coe emerge as a lethal force offensively. She's five foot, and she had a point in every goal, six points in three games. Um, yeah, just brutal. Just brutal to watch in terms of when the game ended, and you just know that for Mount Royal, it's great. You know, they made program history going to nationals for the first time, and then you see the look on Dino's fifth years, and it's just like, holy, like this is insane. But, you know, as a someone just being there just calling the game it was fantastic fantastic hockey through and through and then for the men's two tough games two one goal games as well and they um you know 
I give them all the credit in the world against Sask, a really tough team that they were down three goals in game two and they forced it to a double overtime. And from yeah. there, and I'm sure Mark would say the same thing that you can't really expect more than that. You know, that they, they had a really tough start in the game too. They brought it back and they, they gave themselves a chance and that's just playoff hockey. Well, yeah, we talked about an earlier pod about how there's that quality or that factor where teams need to have for playoffs which is that ability to just dig deep yep. be gritty that extra half gear to get somewhere yeah yeah or to even bounce back even though you're facing adversity right yeah yeah so, so but yeah, yeah. It, amazing weekend all around just disappointing just not the outcomes we wanted yeah. um yeah. but we will end on a high note yes men's track <laughs> men's track and field another banner coming home as the Dinos men's team held on to top spot in the team standings. Just some even great individual performances as well. Uh, too many to list. But yeah, another banner uh, for, for the Calgary Dinos. And for wrestling, Amy Bellavia, friend of the show, a silver medal at Nationals. And Grace Chambers got a bronze in her 55 kg. And, and then also swimming. We also want to mention Danica Ludlow. A another gold. F- another friend of the show. Yeah, another friend of the show. A gold medal in 800-meter freestyle. So there were some good points. It was just the ones that were at home, I think, that just st- stood out yeah. to us and stung. Yes, bit. absolutely. And it's weird, Jeremy, going into this coming weekend that there's rugby sevens. Right. Um, but beyond that, there's, quite on the home there's front. nothing going on in Dial Land, which is... It is weird. It's very weird, yeah. <laughs> No other way to describe it. And then also, quick mass Singer update <laughs> before we wrap <laughs> this up. <laughs> I just have to get this out there. I don't know who else to, to talk about this with. <laughs> so this is my platform. Um, but I know there's a few people watching out there. There has to be. <laughs> but uh, pretty sure the turtle is Neo, like we talked yeah, about. Yeah. Um, the one revelation for me... There was a kangaroo, which I thought was Iggy Azalea, but I've actually shifted now uh, because there was a clue about how the dad was in some trouble or was in jail or something like that, and it shifted to Lindsay Lohan. Is, is she like on a comeback trail? But yeah, exactly. Like, they, they, some of the clues they talk about okay. is something about a comeback and trying to make it right. In the in the limelight or whatever. Th- that is a name I have not heard in a, quite a while. Like, so yeah, Freaky Friday, Mean Girls. That's holy. right. Yeah. And then yeah, she's trying to re- revive a music career through all this. Okay, so I can get down with that. Why not? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, there's a, it's it's cool because there's like the 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 latest mask that got revealed. Uh, they actually brought in some new animals or whatever, but was Tony Hawk. There's also another okay. name you haven't heard in a while. I, and I, I love Tony Hawk. Every, <laughs> everything he has ever done, I, I love Tony Hawk. So that's, that's great to hear. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, you have no idea who this could be. I mean, probably they're a singer, but it could be a chef. It yeah. could be a skateboarder. It could be whatever. So could be a podcast yeah. host. It, <laughs> <probably> <laughs> Joe Rogan. <laughs> Joe Rogan, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, one of the guesses was pretty close. They guessed Travis Pastrana. Okay. Uh, so they were like yeah. right there, but yeah. not quite. But yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. So it's fascinating to watch. Anyway. Um, before we do tee up this terrific interview with with Damian Jennings, um, we and you know quickly we could have talked to him for like three hours. This was fantastic. But anyway, I just want to give a shout out. Being a really 
you know, terrible goalie and, you know, always, of course, in the in my back pocket, having a dream of making the NHL. Just a quick shout out to David Ayers. Seeing what unfolded mm. over the weekend was just unbelievable. And of course it happened to the Toronto Maple Leafs because who else that they can't, they can't beat an emergency goalie. But just to see how, you know, he stepped in, he gave up two quick ones, recollected himself somehow and, you know, made a lifelong memory just to see that unfold was absolutely insane. So all the credit to him. And, you know, he's on a media tour now because he's just an absolute celebrity. Um, but that, that's crazy to see. Like, I always have a soft spot for those goalie kind of things. And I think everyone does when they see yeah. the everyman make the transition to the, you know, to the national spotlight. So, Gotta love those emergency call-ups, eh? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that was amazing to see. But yeah, what, what an interview we have on tap for you guys today. It was, it was terrific to get into the basketball background of Damien and as well, you know, the transition he made to come to Canada, what he sees from you know, changes basketball-wise and life-wise. This guy is a very well-traveled individual, and it was great to chat with him. Yeah, it's coming up for you right now. Thanks, Max. You too, Jeremy. Yeah, cheers. 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 <laughs> Butter popcorn. What'd you get, Max? Not the peach one. <laughs> that was barf 100%. Did you get strawberry banana? Nope. You got oh. barf, I think. I oh, no. Yeah. How accurate does it taste to, to barf? Not accurate, but not, <laughs> not, not comfortable it's, it's either. Not good either. The aftertaste might be. <laughs> it's the aftertaste that gets you. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Damien Jennings from Women's Basketball on the show with us. Um, yeah, pleasure to have you here, and thanks for partaking in this challenge with us. <laughs> no worries. One, one for three. For, yeah, for good beans. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> two uh, two barf beans though is never <laughs> never good for anyone. But we are coming fresh off a uh, a weekend that was just I don't even know what how to describe it. Yeah, uh, on all fronts, and I mean Dino's Land in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we have to start there though. First off, going like heading into that game, you know, you know, you know, it was a big game. Mm. Um, how did you guys feel pressure-wise? Because I know the, like, obviously the pressure's there. Mm. How did you feel your team did in managing that? Uh, pretty well, I think. I mean, the maturation of our group is, is, has been served with some experiences, I think, that set up that game to, you know, we've got Liene, we've got Aaron, we've got Bobby, we've got uh, Reina, um, Michaela, uh, even Laura has been with us when we were in the national championship at uh, Regina. So we've been in, in games like this. We've had highs and lows. Uh, if we go back to 2018 with that national championship scenario in Regina and we beat McMaster and Laval and these were tight games to mm -hmm. finish in that consolation gold. And that's only really two seasons before that, before this one, sorry. And then um, last year with a 17-3 and three finish and the run that we went in league and then losing in the manner at which we did to... Uh, Regina in the semi-final and, and that kind of bitter taste. I don't think I don't think this team forgot those things. I don't think they, um, you know, the experience was certainly there. Um, now, having played U of A so close to the end of the season, it probably leveled it out a little bit more, perhaps, because everyone, sure. you know, both teams knew each other very well, and obviously we had a very strong game, very Dinos branded game, for want of a better expression, at their place and beat them by twenty, and then. Uh, they come back to back to us and a few tweaks and we didn't quite play so well and 
Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I mean, we were slightly handcuffed, I think, at the beginning of the game. I, I rarely talk about, um, you know, things that are out of our control, but, uh, you know, the, the, the officiating was particularly um, difficult on us to start off with, and we got into some foul trouble that I think uh, made it very, very difficult. I was going to say, it felt like the U of A was shooting free th bonus free throws yeah. like two minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> it was I mean, crazy. People talk about the last play as far as the block charge call and the eight-second backcourt that it was clearly. But in, at the end, of all things talked about in detail, the beginning was the beginning. And, uh, you know, the foul count was the foul count. And they're spending all their time shooting free throws. I think they were zero from one from the three-point line by half time, And... You know, I'm really proud of the way we came back. I mean, it really did feel like at times we were playing with one arm behind our back. And Well, even leading into halftime, I felt you guys were making a bit of a charge. You had kind of we, settled in a bit. We were. And again, it was testimony to uh, U of A. It was never a margin that meant that this was a walkover at all. Um, at all. And um, at the end of the day, they've got to win the game that was presented in front of them. And it just felt very odd from that perspective. And... I'm for anyone who knows me. I'm you know here I am on a podcast talking about it, and it's possibly the first time people have heard me speak live. But I've spent 25 years not talking about uh, referees mm -hmm. or officiating or things out of our control. So, uh, and proud of that too. So, uh, a very very strange uh, performance um, and game in general. Yeah. Just to build off your last point there, how especially in the environment that it was this weekend, you know, playoff matchup, big intensity. How do you you know, hold yourself back when there is a big call. And mm. um, just in a general sense, have you ever had any big run-ins with officials in the past? No, I mean, one of the things that, again, you know, it's personal. You know, other people define coaches by their ability to influence referees. I've never really felt that that's um, an angle that I ever wish to um, go down. And they're human beings, they make errors. And I've always fallen back on, well, my players made enough mistakes today that uh, we want to. I want to focus on that. I never want to get out of control, and I want to show them control, the players. That is. So I feel losing it with referees based on you know certain calls. Um, one doesn't present our program with any class, but also in the grand scheme of things, long-term goal, and you're here for a long time. It doesn't. It doesn't pay you back. So partly, then that's why I'm disappointed. I don't have a technical foul to my name in eight seasons here, um, and yet we go into a game and. Um, you know, the that was your window, Dame. Well, this is it. <laughs> this is it. I mean, the opposition shooting 37 free throws. Maybe I should change. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an interesting question because obviously we've all got our own styles, and and mine's mine. Um, and other people judge coaches on that and their ability to influence referees. I've just I've never felt that's part of the game. So even from a mental standpoint, in those last like 20 seconds, mm. with you know Liane's call against mm. her and all that's going on, eight second, whatever, like, how do you keep your cool, man? Well, I think... I was losing it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were, and, and in the main is you're trying to get a message over to a, an official because there are three, they can review, they can't review by NBA standards as far as yeah. looking at uh, footage, but, you know, you can ask them to get together and be sure, particularly on something like that. I was just disappointed that perhaps, um, you know, a crew chief, someone who is, you know, leading the referees, uh, the officials in that moment, could have just said, okay, well, let's take out the crowd for a second. It's not either a block or, an, or a charge. It's 16 seconds on that shot clock. Right. So, therefore, it's an eight-second backcourt. Dino's possession, no foul, 16 seconds left, 78-78. Yeah. You know, there's moments where someone of more experience would have done that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was pushing for. 
I was pushing for the eight second call. Obviously, my everyone in the arena had an emotional reaction to the fact that this is the clearest charge you've ever seen. <laughs> but um, there was a clearer call that could have calmed the crowd down and won the moment. Right, it's, just, what, it's black yeah, and white, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, and that's the eight second backcourt clock. Right, it, it, it doesn't take in any interpretation or or, or um, whatever you want to call it. It was funny. I was sitting right behind the U of A bench, and one of the funniest like chirps that I heard coming from there was just like when during the timeout was. I hope you're talking about what a charge actually is, or I hope you're explaining <laughs> to the guy what a charge is. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about that last play there with Liene going up? Like now, now that you've had some time to process, mm. emotion taken out of it, foul or not? Like, does she go to the line? Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. I mean, if you review the rest of the game, you know, what was a foul, <laughs> um, what wasn't a foul. Um, could be discussed forever. I mean, that's why our sport is so incredible, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a 24-second shot clock sport, and with the pace of the way the game's going, that shot clock's getting smaller and smaller by most teams' approaches to what is a good shot. And here we are finishing off. We've got the ball in hand, and we're able to do something with it, And um, which is why, for me, the charge block, eight-second backcourt, these are all calls that referees don't want to be influencing games on but are forced to make. So... Um, I would never ever take away from the fact that this is tough for officiate yeah. for officials to to get right. Um, but the eight second is a lot easier than you and I debating whether that was a foul or not on Liene. Because <laughs> yeah, maybe that could go on forever yeah. though, right? Um, just quickly to jump off that, are you one to dwell on those kinds of things generally speaking? Because I know you know just looking back at my personal sports history, being mm. a fan of many different things, I think about calls all the time that could have went one way or another are you kind of in the opposite end where you just it happened and that's just the way it is yeah i'm, I'm i move on very very quickly right. and you know almost um at the beginning of a season i've always thought about you know my natural approach and one of the things i want to get better at and you know quite often like we'll win and we'll win playing well and big and i just join the back of the line get ready to shake some hands and i'm already thinking about the next practice yeah. and the stuff that we need to get better at and then right. i got to stop doing that because we've got to celebrate some <laughs> moments um but for the first time in 20 plus years of being in this game coaching and playing um you know robbed is a too strong a word but it just felt weird and um yeah i've i've not I've not quite got over it yet, and we're going to be using it as fuel, and that's cliched and never normally my style because I'm a little bit more intrinsic than extrinsic. But sure. um, you know, I'm, 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 we're still pretty livid, and um, you know, we have a wild card to go to nationals, and why not use this fuel? Because this was a particularly unique game um, that seemed to be taken out of our hands, and I don't wish that as disrespect to U of A because I thought they did exactly what they needed to do, but. Um, even my assistant coach who did an indie with some of the players today, because I've told them we're not seeing you till tomorrow. Like right. I was not interested in doing anything related to basketball and I knew they wouldn't be either. So whereas normally I'm like, get right, let's just get back on the horse and let's go at it and next play kind of attitude and I've given them four days away from me and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but he did an indie today and he just said, it was like cold iron. Like they went through it and they went through it hard, but there's no smiles, there's no talking. It was just, you could just tell they're like, Okay, back to business. Let's yeah. go. So it's cool. Sorry, final question before we move on. I know mm. we've like hound, hounded on this, but no, it's good. You guys played a pretty aggressive style of defense, yeah. full court press, even. Yeah. 
at what point do you just go away from that or do you stick to your guns because you're knowing a lot of the calls are going against you, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because I think if you analyze the layers of the game, yes, there were some fouls that would have been in what we might call transition, i.e. from free for line to free for line. But the bulk of our inability at times, because some of it was inability to defend the size in their front court, right. was actually in the half court. It wasn't mm. in the full court. And if it wasn't for the full court pressure and that level of conversion, I don't think we would have come back from the 12 to 15 points True, we went down yeah. by. So now we went down because they sat at the free throw line the whole time. Um, and we got it back to 39-39 after it looking like, uh, how are you going to play against this scenario where every time you touch them, it's a foul. So um, I'm pretty proud of that part. You know, you do review certain things, but there's a style of basketball. So there's ways of um, tweaking it without saying, okay, are we distinctly full court? Or are we distinctly half court? Um, it's in our nature to be playing in the full court. Now, whether that's an instant uh, early trap, uh, early rotation, or whether it's just a bit of um, fake stuff or a three-quarter pickup or a zone look or a man look or a whatever it may be. Um, but we're always, in my language, defensively transitioning from from up the floor, 94 feet. Mm. So that review is never really there. Maybe how we front trap, guard the post, um, what, we, what we might have to do to get it out of certain angles that they're trying to look for, which we can't handle, because there's a mismatch. Like, we're smaller than they were. Mm -hmm. So how do we manage that that size disadvantage in the half court? Okay, do you, do you send double teams? Do you, um, do you try and get it out of the, if it's always a wing to post catch or if it's always coming from particular action, do you defend that differently so it has to go in a different direction? Or if there's a weaker big out of the two bigs that are on the floor, which one do you try and force it into the hands of? Right. And, you know, different techniques or tactics like that, but we're, we're, we're never changing from a full court pressure team. Right. That. Um, speaking about style of basketball, mm. I want to transition into a little bit about your, your past and how you came mm -hmm. over here. Sure. So you came over from Wales. Yeah. Um, playing in the English, uh, uh, was it EBL? Yeah. Yeah, basically at the time, yeah, it's, 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 the, it's their version of the National League, yeah. How different are the styles between the EBL and U Sports? Uh, well, FIBA obviously keeps some continuity. Um, but at the end of the day, I had 18 to 38-year-olds. Mm. So when it comes to it it's not so much style per se because that can differ between teams within even a league within, right, right? Yeah. so even though <laughs> there's some commonalities in the canada west like canada west is a very physical athletic league um if you were to compare the skill and efficiency of players that i have here compared to who i coached um back in either you know national team europe or domestically in that top league in in britain it, it's a step down but this is 18 to 22 year olds in the main and and that was, you know, I had, well, whether it was internationally or domestically, we've got 30-plus-year-olds that have two children and played in Olympic Games or, um, you know, whatever breaks they'd had in their careers for family and then come back again. And they're, they're just super experienced, talented women. Um, whereas here it's, you know, it's that real chapter of life where they're emotionally and physically changing into women. Um, and therefore the skills are also playing catch up with that. So in general, the basketball is just an efficiency level down here, but as far as physicality and athleticism, this is as physical and as athletic as it can, as it can be. Um, it's just that skill and that IQ that you get when you're 32 and you, you've kind of seen it, done it and whatever. It all, yeah. 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 So what sort of things could you seamlessly 
bring over here um, from your coaching style? And your, well, I think yeah. that my coaching style personally, going back to the point you alluded to before about varying up defensive approaches, is my style is 94 feet yeah. both ways. Yeah. Um, and we're not frightened of shot selection that occurs in the first four to eight seconds because of the pace we play at. Um, and we're not frightened to um, convert and trap and press and do all the things that we think get us more possession. So if you then take a physical athletic league with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds who don't know what it's like to walk down the stairs without soreness yet, then you think, well, this style could work. <laughs> um, they'll say otherwise, there's 50 yeah. years you think they're veterans, but yeah, they have no idea. Wait till they're 40. <laughs> but um, yeah, so style wise, I think that FIBA, which has less stoppages in it, of course, yep. compared to the NCAA. So when we go down there and they only use seven or eight players, and here we are getting through 10 to 12 and it's the norm because yeah. there just isn't any media timeout. So there aren't any other types of stoppages. You've got your short 40-second timeouts. It right. really is a player's game um, in FIBA and U sports. And therefore, I think that um, our style suits this age group, suits this collegiate approach. And I hope it means that the fans are a little bit more interested watching it too. Um, I want to go back a little bit to when you first came to Calgary to join mm. the Dinos program back in July 2012, I believe yeah. it was. So eight years ago from roughly now. And I'm kind of curious, is there anything that when you first came here that you wish you knew now mm. as a head coach, whether that be from a basketball perspective or even just culturally or a life lesson that you may have would have liked to known when you first came here than something mm. that you kind of grew into while you were a coach mm. here? That's a great question. I think that if I reference perhaps one of the most noticeable and difficult changes or differences was, and it goes back to your question before, about um, the differences between, and, and that is I ran a club and that club had five teams and it had over 60 plus players in it. Now I come over to a college which is ultimately 12 players playing on the weekend. So when you're trying to run a squad, because you know two sickness, two ankles, one ACL, you know, what is the magic number of a, of a, of a squad or a roster when uh, if they're all healthy, you're having some really tough conversations on, on the weekend saying, I'm sorry, but you're not in the 12. So to have nothing, so for example, my club team may have had uh, 18 players in a training session of which six became the starters for the second team. Sure. Um, but there was never not basketball for them. They always had basketball. And that's the thing I think I, I, when I came over was it was an emotional shock because obviously I don't want to see people not playing the game, but I've got to look after the, the club and the club needs people to be healthy and uh, they're not always healthy and we need to be competitive on the weekend, whether that's game 18 or whether it's game two. Um, and if you look at our season, we've just played 35 games before we got to the playoffs. Well, you don't yeah. stay healthy for 35 games. Sure. So... You know, sometimes 15 or 16 isn't enough, right? So that was a big difference. And then if the other part is just recruiting. The mentality and mindset here, I mean, if I was to recruit from different areas in my country, it could be called poaching, you'd get in trouble. Yeah. Mm. Whereas here, and I, and I wish the Damien of now would have told the Damien of 2012, because it's not that I didn't recruit, it was, and I'm not, I don't regret putting more effort into the cultural change and, and, and not build it, they will come type of thing, but at least starting in that manner where sure. we, want, we want people to see the product we're running and um, the leadership uh, um, you know, bottom up and top down that we wanted players to see. And of course we went out and recruited, but um, it is 
it is such a significant part of the job and absolutely crucial because it doesn't there's there's no bad coaches they're all good but they're only as good as what their players do right so for the success of this program the success of this university i will continue to grow as a person and, and as a basketball coach but i won't be winning banners here by myself so um, it really is dependent on the quality of people and players that you recruit and and i should have just spent a little bit more time earlier on i think um which means something has to drop, you know, it's, right. it's economics. If you pick something up, something else has, can't right. be done at the same time. So, right. um, yeah, recruiting would have been the, the biggest. That no second team, no third team, nothing but the varsity 12, and recruiting was the huge, right. what I'd advise myself if I could come back to 2012 straight after the Olympic Games. <laughs> yeah. And now that you've been recruiting in the youth sports realm for eight years now, mm. Just from a baseline perspective, is, is it something that you have learned to enjoy and, you know, getting to meet players and making connections that way? Or is it still, you know, it's wholly separate from the game of basketball in a sense? So I'm kind of curious where you stand on that. Yeah, it's a great question because um, it varies. I mean, I actually really enjoy welcoming people into our program and sharing what we love to do um, every day. Like this is a, a passion more than a job to a certain degree. Um, certainly got a little tougher when um, I had my first child, um, who's now three. So, you know, li lifestyle changed slightly, but they love basketball too. So it, it's not like that. But I've always enjoyed not casting our net silly wide. Like we don't go after 100 people to get four. Um, but of course, there come, you, you get more of an emotional attachment to um, less, less being more. So if they don't come, um, obviously it's very disappointing. When they do come, it's fantastic. Um, and you spend a lot of your time and endeavor keeping that relationship going and showing them that you think that this is a great fit and there's a reason why we've we don't cast our net wide and and we and we're a very focused program that way and we've almost come to the conclusion we'd rather have a gap than the wrong person right. mm. so sometimes you win sometimes you lose when when you go down that route um but i i do not want to be chasing after 120 people as a numbers exercise five years is a long enough time and uh, i want to enjoy their company as much as i'm sure they want to enjoy mine <laughs> So one of the most generic phrases that I've heard head coaches talk about is, oh, it's, uh, it's a success when the athlete develops both on and off the court. Mm -hmm. And as Max talked about, it's eight seasons now for you. How do you personally qualify what's a good and successful season for Damian Jennings? Mm. Great question. Um, does, it, does it talk about the athletic side? Does it talk about the achievements, I guess, as a team? Is a combination of both? Is there something we're not looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I don't think there's a human being here on the planet that if they fall short of the materialistic goal, isn't hungry to go after it again, or they give up. So if you're constantly second, third, or fourth, you've got a choice. You keep finding that 1% or advantage, detail, whatever it is, to get the gold to come first, or you say, that's it, I'm done. So... Um, and there's wonderful examples in sport all across it from players, athletes in, in single sports like tennis or track and field to, you know, dynasties and teams that, you know, didn't quit and then found this utopia. Um, for me, obviously, in collegiate sport particularly, um, we've, everyone's got the same goal. We want to win, um, which is why we're sit, sat here still livid and disappointed. And you want to win a conference banner. We haven't done that yet. Mm. Um, you know, from my arrival, uh, this this wild card will be my th our mine 
um, because obviously they leave and graduate. I stay. Um, <laughs> third national championship in eight seasons, which I think we can be proud of. Um, we have absolutely a right to talk about being a national champion, even though we're going in as a wild card, which might be a unique thing. Um, and we're absolutely gutted not to be playing in a conference final this week because we start our training, even if you take it to this season's group, because of course, Erin's been with us for five years, yeah. who you spoke to before. But every year, that team, the 2019-20 team, has a right to be the 2019-20 team. They don't have to be connected to last year's graduates or the ones before that, or in 2018 when we were at a national championship type of story. Th this is the team for this year, and it's their journey, and it started on July 1st. So of course, 35 or 36, if you include the UNBC quarterfinal, we're absolutely gutted that we're not in a conference final. Um, so a lot of weight into, sorry, a lot of weight went into that goal, and we fell short. Mm. Thankfully, because of the work that we've done, because of the way that we programmed our exhibition uh, and, and, and held an RPI like we do, we now have a chance at a national title. And um, if we fall short of that, then of course we will have fallen short. Yeah. What will be the successes? The ones that graduate, um, the holistic changes across across all the players, um, whether it's, as you say, uh, the cliche, on court, off court, um, the recruits that came because of the players that we have, because don't, don't forget that I would say 60 to 70% of the recruiting is done by the current players. Mm. It's the relationships that they build on their recruitment visits. Um, it's the ones that have turned around from a 2.2 GPA to a 2.8, 2.8 to a 3.1, 3.1 to a 3.7, right. um, as well as the academical Canadians. Um, and it's just, it's just watching them grow. This is a huge emotional transformation that they go yep. through. And I often kind of term it as the kind of, you know, if, if we're all driving our car, and that's our life, right? We're, we're either in the driving seat or someone's driving it for us. Um, by about halfway through the third year, you tend to see players starting to drive their own car, you know, like... Um, you know, they're in charge of their budget. They're in charge of their washing. Yeah. They know where the, you know, <laughs> where the gym is. No, they know how, <laughs> they know how practice looks. Um, you know, academically, they, they know what it's like to have three or four midterms on top of them. Right. Uh, they know what December looks like when you're rushing to, to get those exams done and then sort out Christmas, then come back for a tournament. And they're just, they've got the cadence of the year and, they've, and, they're, and they're fully in control. And you start to see it reflect on, on the court. Hmm. But about halfway through the third, you start to see them change. And it's really fun watching that. It's a wonderful, because it's a life thing, right? It's about them knowing how to prioritize. It's about them knowing um, how to manage their lives, drive their car. And um, uh, that's fun. I, I always enjoy that. And as I say, I stay, they, they leave. So I've got to find some other joys apart from just banners. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's always trying to find that extra 1% that you can get better at. Yeah, for sure. Right? And that's why, you know, if, if I just get selfish for a second and look at me and and ultimately I'm living some of my personal goals through 18 to 22 year olds yeah. um, of which I stay they graduate and if I'm missing something that I want of course I wouldn't do this if I didn't if we if there wasn't something to win as well so here we are in a, in a cycle um, which is merited by the, the talents of you know Liene or Aaron and, and Bobby and Michaela and those that have been with us and I know Aaron's the only five-year fifth year that we've had outside of Brianna. So we're still pretty embryonic in terms of me as a coach in, a, in cycles, collegiate cycles. But um, yeah, we, we, we've worked towards this and we just fell short on the conference banner, right? So um, we'll start again. <laughs> start again. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a, 
sideways track here, but I'm kind of curious because you've been around the game of basketball for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I really like to do, you know, reflecting on my early childhood, looking at sports is seeing how the game has changed. Mm. And I haven't obviously been up close to a sport like you have for such a long period of time. So I'm, I want to get your perspective on basketball and from when you started to today at a, at a very general level, is there anything that's changed about the game that has surprised you more than anything, anything in particular? Great. That's a really good question. I mean, I think sitting here uniquely answering this question for you is, is that I've been around the world with it too. So, you know, if I think about playing in the nineties to then starting coaching very early because of an injury, which pretty much had me coaching in my early twenties onwards. And then here I am in another country. And then between that, with the money that came in for the Olympic Games for Great Britain, that literally afforded me something very, very different to most 30-something coaches. So then you're around people that have genuinely seen the decades and they're sharing this with you and you're learning the game through their, their presentation of it. And, and then the rigorous nature of me scouting the difference between Korea's style of basketball, Canada's style of basketball, Australia's style of basketball, and you've got Angola in your Olympic tournament. And, 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 right. and even in the modern terms, you're just looking at styles of basketball. But, and they're so varied. You know, you'd think that the FIBA game is just an internet, you know, it's like soccer, right? It's everyone does the same thing, and of course they don't. Um, but it's getting, it's getting closer and closer, I think, because uh, FIBA have done a really good job of trying to keep a pace of play, right? So 14-second uh, shot clocks on the offensive rebound to the backcourt clock being consistent now. I mean, even if you take, take my first inherited trip. So when I arrived in 2012, we actually went to Montana in December. And we're in... Um, we're in our first college game and you know unlike my normal sort of pattern i'm screaming at the backcourt like eight seconds eight seconds eight seconds and we're pressing this team and the table are looking at me funny and the radio presenters looking at me funny and the referees are looking at me funny and there's no backcourt clock coach i'm like that's it never coming back here again <laughs> type of thing um and because it was what two 20 minute halves at that time no backcourt clock in the women's game none whatsoever right and just like 30 second shot clock, it's like, well, what are we doing? This isn't helping us in any way. It doesn't mm. mirror our game. Now, of course, playing against different players and that athleticism was fun, but just like, there's no point in us coming back. But now they've gone four 10 minute quarters. They have a 10 second backcourt clock. And we've just gone down there for the first time and beaten four US teams because mm. it's, it's a FIBA game now. Yeah. And um, yeah, so even in that short period of time, just in North America alone, it's, it's changed. But without a doubt, the three, um, without a doubt, the pace of play, some of it influenced by FIBA, some of it influenced just by the way our professionals are getting it done. You know, gone are the days where the kind of power forward takes a catch and three or four dribbles later and finishes in the paint without anyone else getting close to them. And now it's, it's, it's quick burp shots, but off fast action. Um, everyone can handle, everyone can, can screen, and you've got... Yeah, it's been interesting. I think if one of the interesting phases in the women's game, because we don't play above the rim, is of course, we've gone away from one, twos and threes screening for each other because it's very switchable. Right. And the game's very switchable in the women's game. So you've, you know, being able to uh, beat someone off the dribble one-on-one, -on -one, uh, if you've got that skill, you're, you're unreal. Um, and because they don't pass faster than they can actually move, whereas the guys can just move a ball, almost fast as they can run, right. um, and we don't play above the rim. It really does require a bit more strategic 
you know, confusion and chaos way, and yeah. stuff. And um, so we're trying to get it through as much content and action as possible to create those gaps and seams that we can actually drive through because going north is, 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 is queen, really, because we don't play above the rim. Um, so interestingly, I would say 10 years ago, it was like one in five. So you could, you know, force them to switch and it'd be a, an issue straight away. Now, um, everyone's switching and creating chaos and trapping and things. So you now, you've now got to do a little bit more like the Golden State Warriors were doing three or four years ago where one, twos, and threes were getting into handoff screens with each other just right. to create a little crack yeah, in the seam just so you could break it. And find that opening. And yeah, whereas before it's like, no, 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 that's too switchable, don't do that. Whereas, yeah, that sort of stuff is changing. But Well, and everyone on that team could defend one through five, right? Yeah. Which is kind of what Aaron was doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And our small ball has kind of lent itself to that a little bit. Um, and small ball seems like such an ugly word because, it, you know, when you were talking to Aaron and she was talking about her position, I almost kind of... You know, went a bit squeamish when she started saying the word post. Because yeah, she's, she's not a post. Stretch post. Yeah, but, but yeah, but you know, she's she's someone who is almost answering your question about some of the changes. Is that you know we're talking about effectiveness of basketball, so the numbers are disappearing, and you know I, I'm more into like what do you bring? Like if 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 you didn't have a coach and you weren't accountable to anyone judging or anything, how would you play? What skills would you bring? If someone gave you the ball and you had six seconds left, or let's say um, your skills aren't necessarily about some kind of offensive skill per se, but what else would you do? And do that. Do that. Show us that every time, and then we'll blend the basketball to fit. And um, I certainly prefer to go in that direction these days than say, right, you've got to morph into this, right. whether you like it or not, and four years later they just about do it. You know, um, so, you know, you've you got to recruit with that strategic direction. And that said, we have a style of basketball. It's pretty unapologetic. <laughs> People know what it looks like. Um, but it isn't, it isn't square peg, square hole either. Mm -hmm. So final question before we head into some fun questions. Um, <laughs> These have been fun. Yeah. <laughs> I can talk about basketball all day. Yeah. <laughs> but just from a player development standpoint, you've had the opportunity to develop some players into Olympic level mm -hmm. players. Mm -hmm. What sort of elements are you looking for and what sort of, um, I guess, qualities can, uh, are you keeping an eye out for so that you, you can maybe encourage the next generation to say, hey, you got something here, mm. you know, you could play at the next level. It's mm. a great question and it kind of alludes to a little bit to some of the changes. I mean, you could go down a stylistic route and you see um, uh, young players that clearly just have a natural instinct for the way the game's played. I mean, um, I, I've had young young female players and young male players that they, you know, like we've probably described them as a, as a gamer. They're just a gamer, right? Yeah. As soon as the ball goes up. But if you did an individual technical session with them, they're not that great. Mm. But when they play, they, they, compete they, get, they get the competition of it. They're assertive by nature. The invasion game principles that sometimes can't be taught. They're just mm. instinctive whether it's the geometry of triangles and maybe they, maybe they had a soccer background before a basketball, just, just some, some things that are, uh, can be taught, but are often you see in people and you think they just have that. Um, and they just got a nose for the physicality of it. And they, and they, they just find a way organically to put the ball in the hoop or just, you know, yeah, I, they've kept it simple. I keep my check in front of me. Well, that's a good defensive <laughs> technique there. Um, but you know, so, some others, just don't do that. So if you if you take it down to its lowest common denominator, there's, without a doubt, uh, on the female side for sure. Yeah. If you see assertive individuals that absolutely play with a self belief, they're they're on they're on a great starting 
point. In our sport, um, yeah, at every position, if you're long, um, if you've got a variety of, of skills and you're not frightened to show it, um, now I think you have to be a score, score first, pass second thought, which is, which is half sad, half just the truth. That's just the uh, way it is. It just, it's yeah. the way it is right now because that's yeah. what's pricking the interest of individuals looking mm -hmm. at you. Um, so that means creating your own shot? You have to be able to, you know, yeah. I think that's one of the skills that is probably the biggest difference between the male and the female game at this age group. You know, the, the higher you go up, the better they are at doing that. But if you're seeing young females in high school that either off the dribble or off a catch can just rip and take, out, take on a one-on-one, -on -one, and then you start to see them read how the help comes across, all these sort of things at the offensive end. At the defensive end, you can just see a joy in the way they're in a stance, just trying to keep that player in front of them. Off the ball, they're always trying to get a little rake and st you know, dig at the ball or whatever, and you're just like, yeah, there's, there's someone straight away. So it's not how precise is their three-point shot or whatever. Um, because it's, it, it's, it's, it's such a physical game, you know, it's an invasion game. So those are the sort of things that stick out to me if you're looking at young, young people. And then, yeah, the things that differentiate people are often the six inches between their ears by the time they get to 20, 21, uh, if you want to go to the next, next level, um, or efficiency. You know, yep. it's, don't give anyone a reason to drop you. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't be 27% from the three-point line at the international level and be a two-guard. It just can't happen. Right. So, yeah. I guess just like anything else, it's sports has become very data driven as well, and looking at efficiencies, and then it kind of yep. you know dictates a lot of your decisions. As well. Yeah, sabermetrics. Yeah. Well, the shot clock too in ours, right? If mm. you know you you take a, a soccer comparison, which is obviously an invasion game, you take basketball, that's an invasion game. There's no net, but the possession game is so different in the two. We have to give this up. It's like I, I watch hockey and 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 um, as in. There's only one type of hockey, right? It's ice hockey. Yeah. Uh, so as, as a foreigner, so to speak, and coming over and watching hockey and, you know, analyzing my sport, which is a shot clock sport, and hockey is not a shot clock sport, but yet it plays at a frenetic pace, you kind of ask, well, why does it? Well, culturally it does. It chooses to, but it doesn't have to in theory, mm. whereas basketball has to. Soccer, you can play as fast as you like or as slow as you like. There's no one says you've got to give this up after 24 seconds. That's right. Yeah. In 24 seconds, you have to shoot it. Yeah. So um, what it does then to the points per possession metric is huge. So then we go back to defining, okay, well, how do we look at individual skills and who's gonna, how they're going to develop and how they're going to separate themselves? Like Making an Olympic team in Canada, for example, that now is really deep in, in, in every mm -hmm. position. Like Lisa's got a really tough job, and, and that's what you want as a coach. And, and it's going to be some of those metrics as well as some of the some of the X factor glue bits that you only find out once they're in camp. You know, culturally, leadership skills, emotionally, mentally, um, but the physical and the technical and the tactical that you can see. Um, you know, it, it's amazing what will differentiate someone. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, some of the mailbag, I guess. Let's do the mailbag. All right, <laughs> this one's probably going to be a silly question, but I can't help but ask. Um, just a very rapid fire one. What's your favorite basketball movie? Because there mm. are a ton that you can choose from. And, you know, I would say, you know, off the top of my head, there's a bit of a, a golden age of basketball movies between the late 90s and, you know, mid 2000s range. And then you're starting to see some come back. So I kind of just want your take on what's your what's one that resonated with you. I'm going to be a bit, bit odd here. and I'm going to say, you know what, I, I'm not I'm not a basketball fan. Um, come again. <laughs> I'm not a basketball fan. Here so <laughs> I kind of watch basketball for, you know, like a student would study anything, right? It's like um, 
I really don't watch basketball like that. I mean, I watch a lot of basketball um, games every day, but I don't watch them like a fan. Like I don't support a team. So even when it comes to movies, I'm always a bit disappointed in basketball movies. But, oh, like but, unreal it might but be. But any like given that. Sunday, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and of course, uh, Coach Carter and stuff like that, you know, I watch these and, um, you know, I enjoy it. And I'm a movie guy too, so I really like movies. But always slightly disappointed by um, sports movies in general. Any given Sunday, I love it. Um, but... I'm more into sort of gangster stuff and things like that. But um, well, now that we have hey, you there, what's oh, your favorite? Yeah, that's movie? right. Oh, Carlito's Way for sure. Interesting. Okay. Really? Wow. Hmm. Al Pacino fan. Yeah. And I, you know, to build off your point, I think that kind of extends to anything where you know, and this is a bit of a skewed example, but when Social Network came out, Mark Zuckerberg was furious at the at it because he felt that the way that. Not only himself was depicted, but how the whole process came about mm -hmm. of building the mm -hmm. Facebook, how it was just not real and mm -hmm. how he experienced mm -hmm. it. And I imagine it's the same thing where, you know, you studied basketball for so long and then you see this depiction of it and you're like, that, that doesn't line up with what I see. Yeah, I, I definitely find that from a sports, I mean, I'm looking, I'm, I can't wait for a movie that does cover it. I mean, there are moments in movies for sure that are basketball movies and, you know, the, the Coach Carter stuff obviously gets you going when it comes to stories and we've all been there with you know, teammates that aren't quite cut from the same cloth and, you know, you're working out your team dynamics and, you know, this lessons coming down from the coach and some, some cultural pieces in there. But as far as basketball footage, it's all awful. It's like, it's, it's hard to watch. Whereas I don't know anything about American football, so I can watch any given Sunday, anytime, or the longest yard or something oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had talked about earlier in the podcast about how basketball has taken you around the globe. Mm. Where has where's the best place that basketball has taken you? If you can pick one, your favorite, your most favorite place. Actually, you, again, I keep using the word uniquely, but um, because it was early on, like in two thousand and eight, when we first find out that the three home nations were going to amalgamate and get the funding, and basketball at that point wasn't an Olympic sport for Great Britain, and even for the twenty twelve Olympics, it wasn't assumed we had to de demonstrate our competitiveness. Mm -hmm. So they put us in Division B in Europe. So we all have our continental baskets to qualify for the Olympic Games and World Championships. We were put in Division B, and we had to show that we were competitive. Um, and one of the first trips we did was we went to uh, Bosnia. They were in our group, and we went to Sarajevo. And Beautiful uh, city. Beautiful. Fantastic, yeah. right? And uh, I wasn't aware of it, and you'd, I, I, obviously you have, so I, I should be careful what I should say, but <laughs> you, you wouldn't think about going there. If you're, if you're a Brit, you go to Spain, Greece, um, you know, Turkey right. on vacation. <laughs> um, and you've done everything else. You've done the Barcelonas, you've done the Paris, you've done uh, Riga, whatever it is. So you've done the city stuff. But to go to Sarajevo, given the, you know, I grew up when it was on the news in the 90s for the war that was going on. Um, and it was just, it, it grabbed me from the start. So it's, it's in a basin. And you'd, um, we're driving over these the kind of hillsides on the coach. And you just see in the background this pixelated white image. And you're going, kind of, what is that? And you could make out the landscape being like this kind of horseshoe basin as we're driving through it. And it's getting clearer and clearer. And then you just realize that these are crucifixes. And wow. they are in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, representing um, that war at that time. Wow. And... Um, we were fortunate enough to get a tour guide in and around the basketball. And back in those days, even in 2008, um, you go into a gym and it's a film of smoke. 
and there's no there's no women watching the women play it's all men sure. <laughs> and they're just smoking in these gyms and it's just Crazy. a unique experience like it would never happen now probably never. still not in, not in even in bosnia um or any other eastern european country they've just kind of almost quickly radicalized that way but 2008 so it's not that long ago but um still old school but um fantastic city um bullet holes in every building um and the tour guide and the people were just desperate for everyone to have a different opinion of them and they earned it from me i just i loved the history as difficult as it was to listen to some of the stories about you know young people and women and kids joining bread lines and being shot at basically because they were just sitting ducks um the basketball club built tunnels so that the kids could still play basketball so they'd go underneath the airport they built tunnels under the airport just so they could get to play and, and this isn't 1920 this is mm -hmm. 1990 um so i was just blown away by that and again i'm not a history buff necessarily but um when it comes to my travel around the world um obviously china was incredibly different culturally <laughs> but uh sarajevo and bosnia was the one that uh, i i hold in memory quite dearly that's right. You did Shenzhen, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2011. I was going to yeah. say that's an area they would still allow smoking in buildings because I was over there in 2018. Oh, okay. They still do. Did they? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was just in the basketball arena. We couldn't believe it. It was just this. It's just lifting. It was just you could see this film of cloud inside this. Uh, well, yeah. it's like Calgary back in the day when you could smoke in restaurants and mm -hmm. stuff yeah, too, yeah, right? Yeah, so exactly. yeah. Um, I just want to touch on one thing quickly, and mm -hmm. you can go into as much detail as you want. <laughs> but upon looking, Almost. you know, looking at your background, and we stumbled upon your LinkedIn page. Oh, really? And the very first experience you have listed is being a floor manager at McDonald's. Yes, it is. So very proudly. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to <laughs> just you know get into that a bit. How did that come out or come about? And uh, that's scary. I've not been on my LinkedIn page. I think you know when it was fashionable to get a look around. Do you have a Wikipedia site? Do you have a LinkedIn page? <laughs> so I set this thing up. I don't think I've looked at it in fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, um, I don't know, I think I'm, I, I don't know if I speak for how it's done in Canada, but in the UK, you kind of f get a job at 16 at some point, and yeah. you're doing sport, and I was working in a sports shop and commuted from my small little seaside touristy town to a place called Taunton, which had a little bit more happening, it wasn't really that happening, but a little bit more going on, and um, actually the sponsor of the basketball uh, tournaments that were going on for the I guess what we would call high school here and club um, was the McDonald's franchisee. And um, I was always winning the MVP award or something like that. So he was always giving me these trophies. So we started <laughs> getting talking and he's like, what are you doing for work? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm working at a sports shop. And he goes, I'll pay you three pounds more an hour. I'm like, okay, I'm Done. in. <laughs> so at 16, 17, I'm moving across to him to do some shifts at McDonald's. And before you know it, I finish my what we call our A-levels, which is our precursor yep. to a university. Yep. And um, I chose to take a gap year and become a floor manager there and kind of worked and uh, in their version of a degree, a floor, you know, a management degree, and it was a great grounding. I mean, we had 80, 80 staff there, and I, here I am as a 17, 18, 19-year-old doing a gap year and learning about everything from accountancy to, you know, uh, recruiting and employment managing law and stuff and managing too. people. and. Yeah. Um, because I enjoyed coaching and teaching and that and leadership and that was really where I felt my calling was and um, I didn't see the lack of whatever my mom might, might judge the lack of glamour with McDonald's I actually just saw it as a great grounding and experience that I could get as a 18 19 year old so um, and very loyal to him he was he, he did very well by me and um, um, you know he's a great friend so enjoyed my time so yeah let's get into some actual mailbag stuff <laughs> first off I want to 
kind of go back to keeping your keeping your cool, all that stuff. You've heard some pretty funny chirps coming at you. Yes, over the years. <laughs> uh, Specifically, we, we love chirps on this. Oh, show yeah, exactly. Too. We, that, we that, ask it every that is episode. a segment in our show. <laughs> yeah. UBC Lethbridge. Are those, would you say those are two of the worst, like harsher environments to play in? Actually, yes, they are. They have been of late. Um, Sask, when we went there, was pretty bad too. Okay. Yeah. For example, here I have Deep Three, UBC weekend. <laughs> Does that mean anything to you? I have to be honest. Like I don't hear how but the players hear it. And they talk about it afterwards. It keeps them entertained for days. Um, I honestly don't hear nearly as much as what comes at me. So, Do you interact with the fans, though? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, have, I have a slight memory of this. I, th- I think... <laughs> did I go back and do something? I don't know if I did that. <laughs> did, did I do the three-point sign to them? I can't remember. <laughs> I honestly sometimes shoot from the hip and don't really remember what I did. Um, <laughs> It's very rare for me to react or respond, but I'm sure they were chirping and doing something. And then I think, was it Liene hit a huge three or someone hit a huge three? And I just turned around and did the normal youthful three-point sign to them. And I think my, my team loved it more than those guys did. And they all just did silence. I, I, you know, I wish I could sell it as a better story. I, I can't remember, but the players seem to like it. <laughs> There's also the story here where... Uh, you kicked a ball against U of A. Oh, yes. <laughs> How did you not get a technical for that? Actually, um, one of the referees saved me for sure. Um, and I think maybe if I've talked about eight years of no technical fouls and some respect, maybe it was that point where I cashed it all in. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe that's that was why. the closest to it probably, <laughs> yeah. hey? Well, it, it was pure instinct. It's like if I threw a ball at you now and you had something in your hand, what would you do? You'd either get out the way or you'd kick it out of your way. Mm. So um, I've got a pen in my hand. I am... Um, talking to a player and this ball comes flying down the sideline and I don't know whether it's because of my British soccer background but I lit my my instincts were just I literally volleyed it and it went all the way up to the track (laughs) uh, flying past the other bench and it and it looked far more aggressive than it was but um yeah we'll just frame it as a strong first touch (laughs) it was very but I thought it was a very sweet volley I mean it's it was pretty put that on your highlight I mean it could have done some could have gone anywhere couldn't it could have been a shank complete um someone's got it on film lances I don't know how Lance has not used that somewhere on some (laughs) night of the dinos (laughs) we'll dig it out yeah we'll have to pull it out um quick question for you you've obviously talked about throughout this podcast the the amount of different roles you play as a head coach Mm. dealing with you know collegiate players that kind of thing and one of the big things that you know multiple players have talked about is being, quote unquote, a personal therapist for whether it's breakups or personal issues or that kind of thing. So, uh, two part question for you: uh, Do you take a lot of pride in in being that kind of person? You know, obviously, you're head coach; you have a job to do as a basketball coach, but also being there, knowing that your players can go to you and you know talk about things that you know beyond the court that are troubling them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, I know I know every coach sees this differently, but um, I never got into coaching just to win basketball games. And maybe that's um, the teaching, the leadership, the uh, I just really enjoy seeing change in people. And that change can come from many different angles and quite often more so um, away from the basketball, if I'm honest. Um, 
you know, the, the, the length of time when they're already good to try and make technical changes, that much change takes an awful long time. Whereas to hold them to account or to have certain conversations or to always have an open door policy or to always have that prickly conversation they don't want to have or to just be a, a shoulder to cry on or, or an ear to listen to can often impact probably more change there than any of the technical tactical things that we get done over a period of time. So uh, I've always enjoyed the relationship. Actually, I get pretty frustrated with myself and this job when it takes me away from that side, which it, it has done more so this year than I ever would want it to. Part of that has been, um, you know, the quality of the coaches that I have and giving them a level of responsibility that means that, um, sadly, I get to sort of look after the admin, the fundraising and all the other pieces that um, weigh on top of you when all I want to do is just, you know, meet and speak and hold a relationship with players because at the at the lowest common denominator, the essence of how successful we are is going to be purely based on our relationships. Um, they come in as a basketball player, they get better as a basketball player, uh, some, you know, graduate one in, one out, three in, three out, but how they're feeling in a working week, you know, stretching themselves and, and you know, all the stuff that can go on in our, in our, in our normal lives has a huge impact. And I, I, my, my, my coined phrase is everything impacts performance. So we want to be in control. Um, and I, yeah, I am proud of that. Um, and yeah, it's, that's why I do what I do. Not just that, you also have the reputation of being a one versus one legend, or one v one legend. <laughs> or have <laughs> you spoken you, to Freya Schmidt? <laughs> <laughs> you take it pretty seriously. I used to. Now okay. I'm an old man. <laughs> but you know, I, I was, being a dad changed you, or what? <laughs> just <laughs> the amount the amount of days in my rearview mirror of me actually doing anything athletically. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think if you're going to do something, do it properly. So now I don't do it at all because I don't want to lose. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I take pride in, in technicalities and, um, and that's why I played golf later on in life. Never picked up a golf club till I was 30. And then all I wanted to do was model and mirror what I thought the, the best do it as. So that's technically, do I do it like that? Not 100% no, but that's what I'm modeling. So when I see a defensive stance, I want it to technically model what it should look like and, and mm. go through that process. So, you know, playing one-on-one -on -one and, and defending them and taking pride in that. And it, it all has layers linked to that. And, um, you know. Well, that's how they get better too, though, right? Yeah. I mean, I, at the beginning, when you're trying to set a tone culturally, you've also mm. got to try and show that um, you can do stuff. <laughs> um, and performance-wise, um, you know, I'll jump in and, and you know, as we get older, we get wiser. We don't necessarily get technically better. So I, I'm jumping in less now than I used to. But for example, if there's some IQ-based things in practice, then I'll certainly come in and hopefully execute to show them and demo for them. Um, I still think I've got the best defensive stance in our basketball club, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Um so yeah, you touched on being a golf fanatic, a newfound oh, golf yeah. fanatic. So, um, you know, coming from Wales as well, there's a lot of great courses out there. Um, so first, have you golfed St. Andrews? No, I've, yeah. I've been to St. Andrews. Yeah. Um, my story for golf goes back to, because I um, thought it was the most boring game in the, on the planet, and then uh, the Ryder Cup was at Celtic Manor. Right. And I lived just down the road mm -hmm. um, on the east side of Cardiff. So... I did a team effectiveness um, sort of consultation sessions for Sports Wales. And their gift to me was 
a practice round at the Kel- uh, at sorry, uh, watching the practice rounds of the Ryder Cup on the Wednesday, hmm. and I'm like, no thanks. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is boring, this yet. is terrible. And they go, no, 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 please. And I was like, okay, well, this is a gift. I can't say no. So, and it rained that morning. So it's like, you've got to get up at 4 a.m. to get on the buses that go in because obviously you're, you're shipping tens of thousands of people, whatever it is, through. Just to stand in the rain. Just stand in the rain. But then I got, I got there and I'm really early and um, we're, they were meeting in the marquee. So I thought I'd go outside and have a look. I got Michael Jordan there, Tiger Woods there, hitting balls at the driving range. I'm like, wow. And I was just hearing the fizz of the ball. I thought, hmm, this is actually more impressive than I thought it was. I'd never seen it live before, never watched it, never swung a golf club. Um, and then, so then went, went and did the hospitality bit and then went down to the rest of what is for the public hospitality. And you can actually have a, a teacher there and for 10 minutes, you've got to hit a few balls. They give you little tips. Little tips, there. right? And again, okay, I'm holding this thing, looking like an idiot. Um, and then just one ball went straight through the middle of the club face and felt like that smooth butter feeling that you get once. Oh, you got once, the sweet spot, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, once every four rounds. Um, <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, this could be cool. Maybe this is my thing after giving up basketball and all that sort of stuff. And then I just became a driving range nut <laughs> because basketball season, I couldn't get to play. I never played in the summer because I was coaching the national team. So you're either playing in thick mud and horizontal snow rain in, in the UK or you're going to the driving range. So I just became a driving range nut. And then my first time playing really was when I came over to Calgary in warm weather. And um, yeah, and then my daughter happened. <laughs> so Priority um, shift. Absolutely, yeah. yes, absolutely. But while you experience golf over here yeah um where have you discovered to be the best place to play because there there are a ton of yeah. amazing courses in oh. western canada you go into the okanagan yeah and you get crazy so yeah yeah well i always enjoy going back to gray wolf in panorama mm, uh, that's yeah. a phenomenal golf course um i actually just really enjoy that invermere strip there and copper point and uh, some of the other golf clubs around there um it's it's too expensive, like all the golf around here. But uh, I live in Tuscany, so Lynx Ridge, I enjoy playing there. Um, I'll play anywhere for free. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, I just you know we have such a short window, don't we, of golf that I'll I'll play anywhere. <laughs> all right. So um, final question for you today, Damien, mm-hmm. and thank you. You've given us uh, over an hour of your time, which is oh, fantastic. So it's pleasure. It's been it's been a joy. So. Uh, this one comes from Aaron McIntosh, the right. fifth year yeah. uh, that we previously had on the show. Um, we want to ask about uh, the dark place, quote unquote dark <laughs> place, and uh, what you mean by trying to embrace that. Sure. Good. Yeah. Good question. I, interesting what resonates with players, huh? <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, I think this is, I mean, sport for sure. Uh, other parts of life, probably. Um, but my reference there for them is that we play at a unique pace. We play at a unique intensity. Uh, that tenacity then has to be practiced. So it's very difficult just to go through the motions if you play this style of basketball. In fact, it can be very damaging because you're setting, you're setting rhythms for what you don't want to turn up in games. So we're always asking our players, and again, it's a little bit like the, the cliched T-shirt of you know growth is at the edge of your comfort zone type thing. But my reference really is that we all meet that point where it just starts to get a bit darker. Like whether it's, let's take an, a, an aerobic exercise, for example, because it's the easiest to kind of use as, a, as an example. You know, we've all done the beep test or we've all done some shuttle runs or whatever, and we could go a little faster, but some little voice tells us not to. And it's often where we're just touching that dark place. 
And we often do a lot of our interval training or sprint work or anaerobic work. And of course, anaerobic means it's repetitive. So you're asking yourself to repeat the same intensity, which is going to have some kind of drop off. How much drop off? Well, that depends on how much you embrace the dark place. <laughs> and, and it's the same with, and again, it can be on a lesser scale and perhaps more of a discipline piece. So for example, when you've just been in lectures three or four per day and you're coming to a film session and the film session lasts an hour and about 40 minutes, you feel yourself dropping off and it's not a dark place necessarily physically, but to have that mental concentration to make sure that you can still apply yourself um, you know, that's a stretch of the dark place, but really the dark place is more of a, is, is a reference to physical, um, and just, you know, getting to that edge of, of where your current standard or performance is and finding a new place, which is, um, always going to be dark. Like that's the thing that I don't know if everyone, um, and I don't want to be old and say this generation, but I just, I don't know if everyone anywhere acknowledges that enough. Hmm. Like it's meant to be dark. It's meant to be uncomfortable. Um, probably um, more than you'd like it to be, and so it should be. And that's where then when you then go through that enough and then put yourself in a game scenario and that dark place materializes, because of course you're playing at peak intensity and fitness, that the others tend to drop off and you just sustain. It's not like you go up to another level, it's just that you sustain. Become comfortable. In yeah, a way. and I found that as an interesting analogy to some of the commentators you sometimes hear like in a, in a, in a Wimbledon tennis final. Um, you know, this player is able to raise their game too. And, and I've always thought, no, I don't think they do. It's just that everyone else can't handle the moment. Yeah. So I don't think Usain Bolt raises his standards. He's just done this time. He's gone through the pain. He's, gone, he's talented enough. Mentally, he trusts himself and backs himself. That he's actually prepared to fail. So it's not that they raise their games. It's something, I've got, I've got to run faster today. It's like, he's just doing what he does and he's been somewhere dark. And I've always found that as, you know, somewhat comforting to a certain degree. Um, trying to get that message across to young, young people or anyone hasn't always been easy, but that's my reference to it. Yeah. Hmm. That's awesome. That's terrific. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Appreciate yes. you. You're welcome. Thank you for the puke bean. <laughs> This episode of Dinos Unfiltered is a presentation of Dinos Athletics. Episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our website, godinos.com. Make sure to check out the website or the Go Dinos app available on Apple and Android for schedules and tickets to all of your favorite teams and games. If you can't make it out to the game, remember that our games can be streamed on Canada West TV presented by Co-op. Thanks to my special guest today, and thanks to you for tuning into the episode. We'll see you for the next one. Thank you.